Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. It has been said that the Magnificat is that like of an aria in opera. Sadly, I know little to nothing when it comes to opera. Actually, let me be honest, I know nothing about opera. (laughs) This was proven by the sheer fact that I actually had to look up what an aria was, let alone how to pronounce it. Forgive me, Mueller family. Shame on me, shame on my family, shame on my children and their children after them. So instead, I have chosen to use the words of William Taylor, a pastor in London, who describes the Magnificat of this. He writes, In my opinion, it is the most popular single of all time. Move over Adele and Adele 30. Take a back seat, Aretha. I mean no disrespect. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is center stage, and the spotlight is on her. And with no mixing desk or backing vocals, she cuts a single that beats all others. For anyone who might be sitting here wondering what in the world is the Magnificat, no worries. I was listening to a sermon this week by a pastor who shared that he had attended this particular school where he was required to attend relentless grindings of services. And in the services, he had to chant or say the Magnificat. And even though he recited it countless times over and over and over again, he was realizing as an adult, he really had no idea what it meant. To my best understanding, the Magnificat is considered to be this masterpiece of poetry, spoken by Mary and recorded by Luke in the recording studio of his garage. That is not true. I just made that up. (laughs) To craft such an awesomeness, Mary drew from a number of Old Testament songs, songs from the likes of Psalms, the song of Hannah from 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and the many great themes of Scripture, and Kanye West. That is not true either. I just made that one up as well. The Magnificat is or the Magnificat has since been turned into a canticle and has formed a central part of Christian praise and has been used by churches for centuries. The word magnificat comes from the first word of the Latin translation, magnify the Lord. Magnify means to get a bigger view, to enlarge something. And I think that's exactly what God desires for us to do through the reading of Mary's Magnificat. God wants to enlarge our vision of himself and enlarge our understanding of his kingdom. So for us today, I want to talk about three things in particular when covering this Magnificat. What the the Magnificat says about Mary, what the Magnificat says about God's kingdom, and and what the Magnificat says about what God does. 
So I invite you to open up your bulletins and follow along with me as we comb through the lyrics of such an amazing artist, starting with verse 45 and reading all the way through to verse 48. Verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. What's so great about these four verses is the fact that if that's all we had were these four verses, we would know so much about Mary. We'd almost have all we need to know what kind of person Mary was. We know without a shadow of a doubt, Mary was a woman of deep faith, of deep joy, and of deep humility. How deep was Mary's faith? Well, verse 45 gives us that answer when it said, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. You see those words, believed, Fulfillment. It means that these things haven't come to pass, but yet she still believed. Charles Spurgeon said this about that text. Even before there was an accomplishment of things that were told to her by the angel, she could sing, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Unbelief would have said, Wait. Fear would have said, be silent, but faith could not wait nor be silent. How deep was Mary's joy? Verse 47 gives us an answer to that as well when it says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Have you ever been so excited that you just couldn't contain the joy welling up within you. I remember a couple years ago when we had our first and only Lenten soup supper. I was sitting next to Tim Holman. A couple hours before I'd gotten there, I was on the phone with Adelia, my wife, and she had let me know that we had sold our cafe. I was so excited. Tim just asking a very random, very normal question, how are you doing? I blurted out, we just sold our restaurant. I couldn't contain myself. I I had this idea that I was going to tell Ethan first, and then Ethan would probably tell the vestry to kind of trickle out, and instead I just told Tim. (laughs) I remember there was a time of prayer, and and I heard Tim say, and we thank the Lord that Steve and Adelia have sold their, their restaurant. And there was this gasp of like, what? Wow. And I heard Ethan in the background go, wow. And I thought, this is not how I envisioned this. I said, faith could not wait and could not be silent. Well, I think that's true about Mary's joy. Mary's joy could not wait, nor could it be silent. How deep was Mary's humility? 
Well, after the angel spoke to Mary, saying that she had found favor with God and would be the mother of Jesus, the Messiah, Luke chapter 1, verse 38 says this as her response. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And after the angel, angel had spoken to Mary, saying that she had, or excuse me, um, let me back up and, and, and say this. Could you imagine if we had read that passage and the angel had spoken to Mary saying that she had found favor with God and would be the mother of Jesus? And this was Mary's response. And we would read this in the Bible. Yep, that sounds about right. I knew it. I always believed this was my destiny. I'm just glad you figured out when you did. I had a roommate in college and when he, um, when he finally had a son, all he talked about um, with, with his son is how brilliant and what a genius his son was going to be. His son wasn't even born yet. He was just telling us this before he, he actually came out of his mother's womb. And we heard about this for like four years, how brilliant and, and he just talked about how, how much of a genius his son was. One day we were walking, uh, me and a buddy were walking in his house down his hallway, and his son tripped into the cat litter box. <laughs> his son popped up and said, I'm okay. And then on his face were little speckles of cat litter on his face and a few other little pieces of something. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, genius? Not sure. <laughs> Klutz? Definitely. <laughs> Mary knew who she was and from whence she had come from. Verse 48 says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, young, common, anonymous, humble, poor, pregnant and unwed, this Palestinian maidservant from the mean streets of Nazareth knew who she was. I saw a book not too long ago, and it was written by a guy named Lou Giglio, and I love the title of this book, he entitled this book, I Know I'm Not, But I Know I Am, But I Know I Am. I love that title. One of my brother-in-laws, a priest in Florence, South Carolina, sent me some of his notes from a sermon that he had preached on this a number of years ago, and he said this about Mary's song. Mary's song is not a song that seeks to glorify her own name, or a song that screams from the top of her lungs how she was magnified by the Lord. She sings with all that is within her, her soul and all that reaches beyond her. Her spirit, she sings in great awe of God who makes himself low, who would place himself in the care of the lowly. The God who is indeed her savior is in her care. When Mary says in verse 48, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary says this because she knew God has this incredible way of taking the simple, the common, the broken, the nobodies, the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the outcast. Brandon Manning calls these people those whose cheese is falling off their cracker. He has this way, God has this way of turning them into the most glorious and beautiful things. That's something about Mary. 
Now I want to talk about what the Magnificat says about God's kingdom. I heard this statement some, some time ago. I'm not even sure where I heard it, but I love it. It says, God chooses people not for what they've got, but for, but for what they haven't got. Could you imagine recruiters, bank loan officers, risk management advisors, model agencies, number crunchers, risk management consultants, this being their mantra, we choose you not for what you've got, or we choose you for what you, sorry, we choose you for what you, you've got, but not, not for what you haven't got, what you haven't got, but what for, yeah, <laughs> killing this. <laughs> you get the point. <laughs> I think we'd say this is madness, crazy talk, foolish, totally upside down. But that's exactly how the Apostle Paul described God and his kingdom in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is backed up in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, where it said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Standard Jones, an Indian Indian missionary who died a few years ago, once said this about the Magnificat. The Magnificat is is the most revolutionary document in the world. I think he must have been reading verses 50 through 53 when he said this. He says, or um, verse 50 says this, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and he has scattered the proud and thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty. He has sent away empty. See, what Mary's saying here is the world is a different place in God's kingdom. What I mean by that is in God's kingdom, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Those that are humbled will be exalted, but the exalted will be humbled. Those that, would, that the world considered foolish, they will be called wise, and those that are called wise in the ways the world will be seen in God's eyes to be foolish. The least will be... The least will be the greatest, and the greatest will be the least. The despised shall be honored, and the honored despised. The poor shall be called rich, and the rich shall be called poor. The weak shall be called strong, and the strong shall be called weak. It is better to be. It is better to serve than to be served. It is better to give than to get. Love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. A couple years back, I was reading this golf magazine. And I stumbled across a quote made by Arnold Palmer called The Essence of Golf. He describes golf like this. Golf is deceptively simple and endlessly complicated. It satisfies the soul and frustrates the intellect. It is at the same time rewarding and maddening. It is without a doubt the greatest game mankind has ever invented. (laughs) If you ever play golf, can I get an amen to that? (laughs) I decided I'd add my own spin to that, replacing golf with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is deceptively simple and endlessly complicated. The kingdom of God satisfies the soul and frustrates the intellect. 
The kingdom of God is at the same time rewarding and maddening. The kingdom of God is without a shadow of a doubt the greatest place mankind will ever live. As I wrap up my sermon this evening with you, I want to spend the remaining time that I have left looking at what the Magnificat says God does, focusing our attention on the last four verses. If you look at those last four verses, Mary repeats the phrase, he has, six different times in the final four verses of our reading. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble state. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. I point this out because he has our words of both God's actions and fulfillment. He ha- And they are essential to both Mary, but to Israel as well. In my studying the Magnificat, I found one writer who thinks, who I think summarizes the importance of this best in writing, in a writing he entitled, What God Does. And this is what he says. The Jewish people in the ancient world were very different from the Greeks. If you would have asked the Greeks what they thought about God, they would have talked about God's essence. They would have said such things as, God is the ground of all being, or God is the unmoved mover. They might have used words like omnipotence or omnipresent in order to describe what God is. The Hebrew people, on the other hand, did not even try to get at the essence of God. They knew it was past finding out. Instead of talking about what God is, the Jews always talked about what God did. If you would have asked them about God, they would have said, our God is the one who delivered us from the hands of the Egyptians and brought us into the promised land. Our God is the one who defended us against our enemies and has guided us and made us the chosen people. The Jews would have talked about what God has done and is doing and would have been contended and would have contended that all we can know about God is what we can deduce from his actions. You see, Mary knew that they were in a covenant relationship with God, and she had faith deep enough to believe that God would not break that covenant. She knew God would not forget them, because through his mercy he helped his servant Israel, and because of the promise he made to Abraham and his offspring. And in these four verses, she looked back into history and saying to herself and to anyone who would listen, look, what God has done. In closing, perhaps like me, you've experienced times in your life where you felt abandoned by God, like God had forgotten about you. Well, let me say this. God hasn't forgotten about you. I promise he hasn't. But I wouldn't blame you if you responded back to me by saying, how would you know? You don't know my pain. You don't know my life. You don't know my story. And I guess one of my answers would be something like this. I know God hasn't forgotten about you because he didn't forget me when I was one and a half years old, starving from malnutrition and living in an orphanage in Seoul, Korea. 
I know God hasn't forgotten about you because he didn't forget me when I was in the sixth grade and my parents were told by a group of educational specialists that I had a learning disability caused from starvation and malnutrition and that the best they could ever expect for my future was me becoming a garbage collector. Although sometimes I do wonder after a big party at the Casa if I'm not a garbage collector (laughs) disguised as a youth leader. I know God hasn't forgotten you because after a messy se- because after a messy seven year marriage that would ultimately end in de- a devastating divorce, I th- I thought I was a terrible father and a terrible husband, and that I would never find happiness or love again. And God restored all that was lost and broken by bringing Adelia, Toby, and Macy into my life. I know God hasn't forgotten about you. Because after taking a job in a small western PA town called Grove City, one I swore I could never live in, but now I've come to fondly call my home, my wife and I desperately needed to sell our cafe or possibly face having to file bankruptcy. I will confess, I wasn't sure if we'd ever be able to sell that cafe. But we did. And God rescued us by finding us a buyer just in the nick of time. Seriously, just in the nick of time. I believe God hasn't forgotten you because he didn't forget me. But let me also say this. That's not the main reason I know God hasn't forgotten you. Let me say this again. That's not the main reason why I believe God has not forgotten you. In this life, there will be highs and lows ups and downs. One day we'll feel like we're on top of the world and the next we'll feel like defeat is at hand and God has once again forgotten us. The main reason I know God hasn't forgotten you that surpasses yours and my experiences is because scripture tells us he's already proven he has rescued us. By showing his by showing his greatest love for us in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the hard wood of the cross for us while we were yet sinners. I guess what I'm trying to say in this is the reality, my feelings of forgottenness pale in comparison to God's faithfulness through the life and death of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. What I'm trying to say is that my feelings of forgottenness pale in comparison to God's faithfulness through the life, death of his, the life and death of his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, we under, and when we understand that, we, like Mary, will find the deepest of faith, the deepest of joy, the deepest of humility in God. And that kind of faithfulness no matter what our circumstances, ought to make us want to rise up and sing like never before and not stop singing. My soul doth magnify the Lord. My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could-